Well, good morning. And let me welcome everybody back from the snowmageddon uh, of last week. It is great to see that everyone survived that. Uh, I want to share this morning, before we dive in, just a few announcements in life and ministry of our church. First of all, uh, this week we do resume our, uh, resume our midweek activities. Uh, that's this Wednesday evening. So if you would like to participate and have not yet registered for a class, uh, you can go online and do so. Also, speaking of, uh, Unite Registration, the deadline for that, that is our a time for students 6th through 12th grade, uh, Friday and Saturday, where they have dedicated times of staying in host home and with leaders. Uh, they will be worshiping together, diving into God's Word together. And so I ask two things. One, if you have a student that would like to participate and you've not yet registered, today is the deadline. It's not a north side deadline, meaning 24 hours after today is actual. That means really today is the deadline. We need to know that. So please register for them. And for the church at large, I want to encourage you, pray. Pray for our students this weekend that God would speak uh, to them in a special and unique way. Pray for our leaders uh, that God would use them in a special and unique way as well. Also, if you're a guest with us today in the seat back in front of you, uh, you'll see a card that looks just like this. Uh, we would love for you to take an opportunity to fill that out this morning sometime, not during the message, but another time of our service, and then you can drop in one of the offering receptacles as you leave today, uh, or uh, we will be available in the lobby to my left. Also, would love to meet with, meet with you and also receive that as a gift to us from you today also. Also, on the back, you'll see a QR code. You can download our church app. All information and activities, registrations about Northside are available there, as well as a place where you can follow along uh, with the text that's used each, each Sunday morning and a place for you to take notes also. One other note, when you came in this morning for the last couple of weeks, we've had these uh, interfaith comparative belief charts out. It's just, just kind of some fold-out information as, as we're going through a, a new study uh, in series right now. This gives you a quick reference guide to just what uh, other faiths believe about God, about eternity, about the Bible, about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, also, what other cults believe about that, too. So it's a very quick, easy reference guide for you as you engage in other people uh, in some of these connection conversations that we have. We find ourselves now in our fourth week uh, in this connection series, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're just looking at connections we already have with people and within the light of our commission then to go, uh, but, but also to, to make disciples as we go and how we can do that with the connections we already have. And I, I hope you've continued to make those connections throughout the week. You know, Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Well, this morning, we're blessed to have with us Dr. Dominic Hernandez. Uh, Dr. Hernandez currently serves as professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot School of Theology in California. And I would give you his entire pedigree, which is very impressive and even includes Princeton. The truth is, the man has more degrees than a thermometer. I, I'm telling you, he is just, uh, he is loaded up, and, and uh, I mean it. Uh, but not only does he have uh, a knowledge uh, of Jewish culture, uh, but also has an incredible heart to reach the people as well. And so that's why he is with us today. Not only will he be with us this morning, but at 2 o'clock today in our venue, we're going to have kind of a continuation of today uh, and really just a time of Q&A, question and answers, where you can uh, ask him about what's happening on the world stage today uh, in Israel, his thoughts on that and different perspectives and also questions about all he's shared this weekend with us also. But with all of that said, uh, please help me to welcome 
my brother, Dr. Hernandez. Delightful to be with you all this morning. I've been received so warmly at this congregation uh, Friday evening, yesterday at breakfast, or Friday evening at dinner, yesterday at breakfast, and this morning as well. So thank you all for uh, the warm, warm welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Pastor David, for the invitation. I invite you all to either open your app or open your Bible uh, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And while you're doing that, I'll take the opp this opportunity to introduce you to my family. That is my wife, Gabby, and I on the right-hand side of the screen. We've been married for 21 years. Gabby is a Mexico native. My family is from Puerto Rico, so we do not talk about soccer or baseball in our household, <laughs> uh, among other things. Uh, to, the right, to the left of the screen are our children, Yair, the boy, he's 12, and Yael, she is seven. Um, Yair was born in New Jersey, moved to Israel when he was eight months old, and then returned from Israel after I, did the PH, I finished my PhD there. Yael was born in Jerusalem uh, to a Puerto Rican father and a Mexican mother, so I joke around and say, our passports just have confused across the front. That's <laughs> what our passports say, confused. Pastor David made reference to my academic uh, credentials. Here, here they are on the screen. Um, I serve as professor of Old Testament and Semitics, as Pastor David was saying. And you're welcome to stay in touch through my website. We have all different uh, means. We're, we're kind of omnipresent online these days. Isn't that right with all the social media? Oh, and since your phone is open, that might be an easier way to just scan, and you can go to my website. I'd be happy to stay in touch with you all. Now, I trust that you are in John chapter 10, or you have opened up your application, and you have the text in front of you. From 2011 to 2016, as we just made reference to, my family resided in Israel while I completed my doctoral studies at the university there. And during this time, I would occasionally fly back to the United States to visit friends and family. And about during my second year there, I flew back to the U.S. with my one-year-old son, Yair. And as we're going to, through passport control, uh, the, the passport control officer is looking on his computer, he's looking at me, he's looking at his computer, he's looking at me, and something alerted him. And so he stepped out of his booth, I'm not sure if this has happened to you, and he asked me to walk right next to him to that back room. And while I was in the back room, I realized, holy smokes, my son and I are in the custody of the U.S. Border Patrol, and there's nothing we can do about it. I had no idea why I was being detained. That is scary. Everyone in the back room was nice to me, and they let me go after like an hour or two, but, and without an explanation. But you know what? The next time I came to the U.S., the same thing happened over and over and over again. This started to happen to me where they would take me into secondary, ask me some questions over and over. And finally, I got to the point where after this happened a couple of times, where I asked the officers why I was being detained. I became brave and said, you know, why are you doing this to me? And it turns out that all these ordeals in the back rooms of U.S. airports, normally really big airports, right, uh, were simply because my identity was confused. Evidently, they were looking from somewhat, for someone else that had my sa the same name as me, maybe even looked like me, and, uh, and, and that had committed a crime, 
And every time I came to the country, they were pulling me into secondary, thinking that I was this person. Look, it feels terrible to have your identity confused. Getting hassled over your identity is terrible. And actually, in, in the situation in which I was being hassled over my identity, it could have had grave consequences if the U.S. Border Patrol would have reformulated who I was based upon the information that they had. In fact, there's always consequences when you reformulate someone's identity, right? Because no one has the right to redefine who you actually are. In our passage, in the passage that we're going to read today, we not only see Jesus getting hassled over his identity, but we see that Jesus permitted, would not permit people to redefine who he was. Jesus' identity was not something that could be redefined or is something that can be redefined. And in John chapter 10, verses 22 to 31, we'll read 22 to 30 first. Jesus openly identified who he was despite being hassled over this and over his identity. And this provides us with an example of how we can go about boldly proclaiming the identity and the mission of Jesus. So let's read now John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30, and we'll read the 31st verse in just a couple of minutes. John chapter 10, verse 22 says, At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would guide us. Lord, that those who have put their faith in you would, would be guided and directed by your word and your example, Lord Jesus. And may your example be uh, Lord, powerful and impactful in the lives of those that are listening, that are here, that may, have not, may not have put their faith in you. We pray, Lord, because we know you listen, because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, most people love the holiday season and uh, the festive celebration that we see during the time in November, December, when we're celebrating the holidays here in North America, Thanksgiving and Christmas. These holidays, however, are generally accompanied by certain symbolic de decorations that we know absolutely nothing about. Like, where did garland come from? And what, why do we eat turkey or ham on Thanksgiving or Christmas? And what's the origin of the Christmas wreath? Maybe a couple of you know some of these things, but we hardly know the origins of these symbols that we see during this time of year, and we simply now accept them as part of the holiday season. Well, during that time of the holiday season, November, December-ish, we start to see these menorah-looking nine-branch lampstands in our, around our neighborhoods and local retail stores. Now, many Christians, when they look at this, they're kind of like, wait a second, that's probably a Jewish symbol because it looks really similar, similar to that seven-branch lampstand. Well, the nine-branch lampstand is called a Hanukkiah, with a guttural, Hanukkiah. And it's the lampstand that's used to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is normally, uh, Hanukkah can be referred to as the menorah holiday, and it usually falls around Christmas or something like that. And because of that, many Christians consider this to be something like the Jewish Christmas or something like that. 
In fact, uh, some people around my age, I'm 43, might even remember a really famous comedian, uh, Jewish comedian Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song in which he humorously compares Hanukkah to the Christmas holiday. He says, put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah, so much funukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have eight crazy nights. And he continues. Now, as Sandler mentions in this song, uh, Hanukkah is nicknamed the festival of lights. And this is because Jewish people light candles on their Hanukkah during this time. But why do they do this? And what is the association of this festival with light? Why all the lights, the funs, the, the fun, the games, the sometimes presents, not everybody exchanges presents, um, is Hanukkah the Jewish Christmas. Now, unlike the Christmas holiday in which we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, the Hanukkah story is different. It involves religious oppression, the desecration of the Jewish temple, warfare, and ultimately bloodshed. Now, you would never know this in our modern day and age based upon how Hanukkah is celebrated. It's normally celebrated by eating these donuts called sufganiyot, uh, eating fried potatoes called uh, uh, levivot or latkes, and spinning the dreidel. Many of you have seen dreidels around this time. And lighting the Hanukkiah, this nine-branch lampstand, this nine-lampstand uh, with seven or nine spots instead of the normal seven. And in fact, if you were to go to your Jewish friends' houses at sunset during uh, the, the Hanukkah season, you'd see them lighting candles and saying a blessing something like this. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to light the Hanukkah candle. And Christian people are like, where does that where does that command come from? They say another one that's something like this. Blessed are you, our uh, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to light the Hanukkah. I'm sorry, wrong one. That uh, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who did great miracles on behalf of our forefathers during those. What miracles are we talking about here? Then after, this time, after the lighting of the candles, many of our friends would sing a song that's, that's translated roughly something as that, like this. The, that were, the, the candles that we're lighting, we light them because of the miracles and the wonders, because of the war, wars and salvation that you did on behalf of our forefathers. And we ask, what, 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 is, what are we talking about here? Well, well, the blessings and the song alluded to, or the, the blessing and the song that were just up on the screen allude to the, the story, the assumes story behind Hanukkah. Now, we're not completely sure, sure of all the details behind this holiday because it's only mentioned one time in the entire Bible, in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, where we read, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. That's Hanukkah. How do we know? Because Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. The Feast of Dedication is the holiday that we now call Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev and always takes place in the winter. So John references the Feast of Dedication that came to pass in the winter in John chapter 10. He's talking about Hanukkah. So why would Jesus be in the Jerusalem temple during Hanukkah? Good question. Particu this, and this is important here because... Uh, Hanukkah is not one of the major feasts that we see show up in the Jewish law, in the ancient Israelite law. So understanding a little bit of the history behind 
Hanukkah helps us understand why Jesus was in the temple and what Jesus was doing in the temple during this time. Now, in our day and age, the lingua franca, that is the, 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 the language that is spoken amongst various people groups of even different languages to communicate with one another, that language, for the most part, is English. But this wasn't always the case. You get that, right? A few hundred years before the birth of Jesus, Greek was the lingua franca, the language that was used in a large portion of the world, spanning from Asia to Europe because of the conquests of Alexander the Great. And with the conquest of these regions, uh, it came with the importation of the Greek language and Greek customs. This process is called Hellenization. So in Israel and the Jewish people were affected by Hellenization. Some Jewish people were Hellenized and some Jewish people weren't. We actually see an example of this in the New Testament where there's a dispute in the early church between those people, the Hellenized Jewish people and Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. In fact, Hellenization is the reason why the pages of our New Testament are written in Greek, right? Even though they were written by Jewish people, John, Yohanan, Saul, or Paul, Shaul, and Peter, Kaifa, the, the, their mother tongue was probably Hebrew, but they wrote in Greek. Why? Because of Hellenization. Now, Alexander the Great, he dies, and his successors fight over his kingdom. And about 150 or 160 years after his death, a Greek group called the Seleucids controlled what we now know to be most of Israel. And for some reason, he began to, to oppress certain aspects and even forbid certain aspects of the Jewish religion. We don't know exactly why, but Antiochus forbade kosher food. He forbade circumcision, and he prohibited Israel from keeping the Sabbath. We don't know why, but he did this. Now, interestingly enough, this happens during what we call the intertestamental period, meaning that we do not have a biblical account of what, what happened during this time, but we do have an account in this intertestamental book called 1 Maccabees, which tells a lot of the po political history of the story of Hanukkah. And, and interestingly enough, 1 Maccabees says some of these things that, that I just mentioned, gives some of the history behind what happened? Then the king, Antiochus IV, that's Antiochus IV, wrote to his whole kingdom that everyone should do what? That they should give up their customs, that they should adopt a different religion, that they should uh, sacrifice to idols. What else? He directed them to follow the customs strange to the land. Look at this, to forbid burnt offerings and drink offerings in the sanctuary, profane Sabbaths and festivals and the like. And then look at this, to sacrifice swine. That's big. Sacrifice swine and other unclean animals to leave their sons uncircumcised. That is the, the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, right? Uh, many in Israel stood firm, as we see, but many in Israel stood firm, but some people gave into this, as we read in this, in this historical book, 1 Maccabees. Now, the story, the story goes that at the, the, the pinnacle of the aggression of Israel, Antiochus sacrificed pigs upon the altar of the temple and walked into the Holy of Holies of the second temple of Jerusalem, complain, uh, uh, claiming that he indeed was God in the flesh, Epiphanes, God incarnate. Now, at the end of the passage that we just read from 1 Maccabees, we read that some in Israel stead firm. Now, the story goes that a man named Matityahu Mattathias, 
The Hasmonean, a priest from the town of Modi'in, and his five sons, they refused to take it, they refused to participate in this forced Hellenization. So what happened? They started a revolt against the Greeks. Now, Matityahu, he, he dies early in the revolt, but his third son, Judas the Maccabee, was able to lead this insurgent Jewish army and, uh, and throw off the yoke of the Hellenistic oppressor. And eventually they make their way to the temple in Jerusalem in the year 164 before Christ. And when they arrive in the temple, they find the temple precincts completely ruined, including the altar. We read again from this historical book, 1 Maccabees, that uh, they decided to rededicate the temple. In fact, they decided to tear down the, the altar and rebuild the altar. Uh, that had been desecrated. And they decided to do what? They decided to then make the, they, they decided to then light the menorah, the lampstand that was in the, this temple precincts as well. So this passage that we're reading records, it's the, it's the only historical uh, passage that we have that records the desecration and then the rededication of the temple, the rededication of the the desecrated altar of the Jewish temple, where the sacrifices that are outlined in our Old Testament were to be carried out. And after this initial rededication, it was determined that the rededication of the temple should be commemorated on an annual basis, and that inaugurated what we now know to be Hanukkah. Now, before leaving this passage that I have up here, it's important to, refer, it's important to, make, to remember that there's reference to the lampstand. Actually, I can, you can see I bolded it here. This was the menorah in the temple, the ancient Israelite temple. You know, there was a big, beautiful lampstand that was made of gold called the menorah. And God commanded that the light of that menorah never be extinguished, as you can see in this passage. So according to Jewish tradition, when the priests arrived at the temple precinct, they saw that there was only enough undefiled oil to light the menorah for one day. And so they immediately started the production of oil, and that's when the supposed miracle of Hanukkah came to pass. According to Jewish tradition, the oil that should have only lasted one day ended up lasting eight days, the eight days that were necessary to produce more oil so that the menorah could per be perpetually burned in the temple. Now, we don't have a historic account of this. We only have this comment in the Talmud, which was written hundreds of years after these events came to pass. Now, what's interesting is that prior to the writing of the Talmud, which, which was written hundreds of years after this, prior to that, John locates Jesus in the temple. So between the historical events and the writing of the Talmud, we have Jesus located by John in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. We don't know if Jesus is celebrating the supposed miracle of, of, of the lighting of, of, the, of the, the supposed miracle of the oil. We don't know that, but Jesus is in the temple apparently commemorating the rededication of the temple. So to ask, why is that important? And the, on one end, you know, this is not particularly surprising for us. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus did Jewish things, right? Jesus did things that were common in Judaism during his time. But Jesus is also a great teacher. And Jesus used signs and symbols that were common during his time to teach about who he was and what he came to do. And that's what causes this hassle on Hanukkah. 
Because Jesus is unsurprisingly in the temple because he's a Jewish person during the Feast of Dedication. But surprisingly, he asserts his identity in an astonishing way, and that's really what shell shocks his listeners. So with all that backdrop in mind, let's take another look. Please glance down once again at John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30, and we're going to discuss two important features of Jesus' comments in order, Jesus' comments, and, and we're going to do this so that we can get a complete idea of what Jesus is doing in his context when he asserts his identity on Hanukkah. So look, Jesus uses in this passage the imagery of a shepherd and sheep. You see that? So to be explicit, Jesus is the shepherd and the sheep are his followers, right? Okay, so... Now, this shouldn't be so surprising to us if we're familiar with the Old Testament. You see Jesus actually right here on the slide. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We're kind of like, okay, we're familiar with this. And as we read the Old Testament, we also see sheep shepherd imagery. Look at this. This is Jeremiah chapter 23. Just in verse 1, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You see that? Oh, we, we've read the Old Testament. We kind of get this. Wait a second. The sheep part is easy to sort of figure out. It seems very clearly that Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel. And in fact, it seems very clearly in the context of John that Jesus is speaking to the people of Israel. That's not the problem. The problem is the shepherd part of the metaphor. Now, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking for the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the personal God of Israel. Notice what Jesus says, right? Sheep hear my voice. He's now the shepherd. Whoa, no big deal when it comes to the, uh, the, shepherd, or the sheep part of the metaphor. But as soon as Jesus says things like, I am the good shepherd and the, law, and the, and the, and the house of Israel, they're, they're the sheep. Now that's, that ends up being problematic. We have an issue now, right? Jesus is metaphorically referring to himself as God. And not just a God, the God of Israel. And to magnify that issue, in verse 23, verse 23 explicitly states that Jesus was in the temple with, with religious people, and they would have been familiar with this imagery. It's, it's, it's reasonable to suggest they would have been familiar with this imagery. And now you see the scene that's starting to develop here. Jesus makes reference to this metaphor. Metaphor. They would have understood how he was slightly modifying this metaphor to claim, to identify himself as the God of Israel. Jesus called himself God through the shepherd imagery. Now skip down to verse 30. Verse 30 leaves no room for speculation concerning the identity of Jesus, where he claims, I and the Father are one. Now, just, let's just pause for a second and think about the implications of this verse, okay? Um, Judaism and is not confessional like many of our Christian denominations or groups. It, it's, it really isn't. Um, in order to to be a religious Jewish person, you don't have to like sign a statement that says, I agree with these particular principles, you know, I agree with this theology of salvation or this eschatology. Like that many of my Jewish friends would never do such things just because that's not how Judaism works. But there is sort of one, I think you could say, foundational principle for religious Jewish people. That's most religious Jewish people would say that you cannot disagree with this if you want to be a religious, if you want to practice Judaism, 
Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. And religious Jewish people recite this several times a day. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were to bring monotheism, that is one God-ism, to the people around them, right? No human being could, and still we can say, no being can make themselves out to be the God of Israel. But here is what Jesus does. He dares to make himself equal with God, saying that him and the Father are echad, one. One. Now let's just imagine for a second the severity of this claim to the ears of the people who were in the temple during the rededication of the temple. Only about 190 years earlier in that very same location, the temple was desecrated during the rule of Antiochus IV who called himself God in the flesh, God incarnate. And now Jesus is standing in the very same location claiming to be God. Jesus' words are blasphemous to his hearers. And the timing of his words couldn't have been more orchestrated by the master teacher. They were orchestrated, this whole scene was orchestrated to come to pass in the ultra-significant celebration of Hanukkah, in which Jewish people were in their temple, rededicating their temple, in their temple, rededicating their temple. It's by seeing Jesus' comments here that were similar to what we see in the Shema, right? He and the Father are one, Jesus calls himself one in the Father, and to the ears of his contemporary, he, he blasphemes the temple once again. So now we can see why people were pretty upset with him during the Feast of Dedication, during Hanukkah. He identifies as the Father. His claim is to divinity. And so it's very clear that the, the listeners, those that are there with him, understand what he's saying. Why? Because we read in the very next verse, they pick up stones to stone him. Now, why in the world would they want to kill him? Well, according to the law of ancient Israel that we have in our Bibles, blasphemers should be put to death. Look at this statement with regard to blaspheming the name of the Lord in Leviticus, right? Those who blaspheme the name of the Lord should be put to death. Look at this. They should stone him. You see that? should stone him. So Jesus was perceived as demonstrating the ultimate form of irreverence by making himself one with God and thereby people, and, and then people picked up stones to stone. They knew what he was getting at. The same zealousness that we see or that, we, that history tells us caused the Maccabees to start a war against push, uh, Hellenization and to push back and take their temple back, right? To throw off the Greek, of, uh, the, the, the Greek pagan oppression and to reclaim their temple. That was the same type of zealousness that we see here in this passage, but with Jesus, their zealousness was misguided. Why? Because Jesus wasn't any Antiochus Epiphanes. He wasn't any simply pretentious sort of wannabe claiming to be something that he could never be. He didn't set himself up in the temple, thereby desecrating it. Like that's not what, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus did. He rightfully claimed to be God wrapped in human flesh and thereby demonstrating the symbolism for which the temple was constructed. He did this right before their eyes. And we see like after a statement that Jesus makes like this in the temple of over the feast of dedication and the reaction of the people in the context, we read this like in our day and age and we're like, wow, given that historical context, that's, that's a pretty serious claim. And, and, and understanding some of the context now, it's perplexing to hear people in our day and age say things like Jesus was a good teacher. 
in light of what he says in his context, like at bare, or at bare minimum, what John seems to be claiming about Jesus in his context, it's unacceptable to say that John is claiming that Jesus was like a good teacher. You know, like, no, 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 no. Actually, he uses the sheep shepherd imagery, and then he says he's one with the Father, right? He's claiming to be God of Israel. It is impossible. It is literally and literarily impossible to, to, to view these words in this passage without recognizing that Jesus, or at least John, right, is making a claim to Jesus' divinity. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, everybody knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be their God. And in John chapter 10, verse 24, we, we, we see, we, we're just re, re, reminded of what actually started this whole thing, right? People said to him, look, if you... If, who, you know, who you, who you are. Like, tell us plainly. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, right? So like, what did Jesus do? He told them. He said, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be one with God wrapped in human flesh. Like, he answered their question definitively, precisely, really, even though there's a metaphor here, unambiguously. And in the 21st century, in our day and age, Jesus' claims are just as true. They're just as compelling as they were in the first century, particularly understood in light of the story of Hanukkah. So in our day and age, friends, the world is looking at us and saying, how long, church, will you keep us in suspense? Like, if you're going to show us Jesus, show us Jesus. And it's our responsibility as the church to answer definitively, precisely, and unambiguously in word and deed. As followers of Jesus, we are compelled to stand on the deity of Jesus and his teachings about himself, right? This is a fundamental component to the Christian faith, and we cannot yield at this point. If there is one thing that we can take from Jesus' definitive words in this context, it's that no one has the right to redefine Jesus. Just like there are grave human consequences for those of us who might uh, be, you know, our identity might be redefined when we go through an airport, so there are grave spiritual consequences for redefining the identity of Christ. Jesus' identity is fundamental not only to the overall redemptive message of Christianity, but it also bears personal implications. It's not just a them thing, but it's also an us thing. It's easier to concede to Jesus' claims to divinity if you understand them just to be sort of impersonal declarations of a world religion, right? We can deal with that. But Jesus' claims to divinity have an effect on every single person at an intimate, personal level. Like, you see, if Jesus would have just chilled out for a little bit in the temple, like if he would have just, just stopped, if he would have just been a little bit more cautious, if he would have balked when it came to asserting his divinity... He would not have caused an uproar in the temple, and people would have been perfectly fine with coexisting with Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's the Jesus we sometimes prefer, the one that is willing to coexist with us. And in this manner, we don't have to take any, we don't have to make any serious changes in our personal life to get along with Jesus. Jesus isn't a disruptor, but Jesus can't be redefined, he can't be defined based upon any terms except for the ones that he gave. And if he's indeed one with the Father, then he's Lord over everything. And no human can ascribe another identity to him so that we don't have to deal with his lordship over creation and us individually. If we permit this mischaracterization of Jesus in our lives, 
We will quickly turn him into an altruistic human being, a marvelous thinker, a talented guru, or a devout literary personage. Look, Jesus is all of those things. But he was more. No human being has the right to reduce his identity or claim him to be anything else than what he claimed about himself. So standing firm for the identity of Jesus may very well cost us like it cost him. But standing firm on the identity of Jesus and his lordship over all is worth it. Whatever it may cost, it's worth it. We count it in honor to be counted among those people who might be caused to lose something in order to gain and be able to, to gain him and to be his witnesses in this world. The rededication of the temple that we talked about is more significant than the potential miracle of oil. That, that may or may not have happened exactly the way that we have it written down. But remember, the, central, the, the, the temple was the central way that God was showing his people who Jesus was and what he was going to do before he came to this earth. The temple was the place where pure sacrifices were carried out, right? The temple was the place where pure sacrifices were carried out by a perfect inter... Or, I'm sorry, by pure sacrifices were carried out by an intermediator. And we see that the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was indeed the only perfect intermediator to carry out the perfect sacrifice. The fact that the temple was rededicated permits us to see God's faithfulness in letting that testimony of what Jesus was going to do to continue to come to pass until Jesus came to the earth and said, I and the Father are one, eventually going to the cross and resurrecting from the grave to demonstrate exactly what he was saying to be true. It's pr we praise God for that faithfulness. We as believers in Jesus, we are called to stand on the truth of Jesus' claims because God is faithful. Now let's pray. Let's, let's even pray right now that God would empower us to be as bold as Jesus was in declaring exactly who Jesus is. Now, by the way, if you pray this prayer, God might answer it. He might give you opportunities to be bold for who he is, to boldly assert the identity that Jesus asserts himself on the pages of the New Testament. But may he give us strength to be his witnesses and to endure any potential consequences for persevering for his sake, especially during the times in which we might be tempted personally to redefine Jesus, giving him a new identity in order so that we can avoid hassles. Let's, let's pray that right now. Lord, we as your church, as your people, we come before you knowing that you hear us because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done. Lord, we thank you that you listen to us and we thank you that, Lord, praying that, you, that, that we would be your witnesses on the earth is, Lord, right in the middle of your will. We want to be like you on this earth and we want to stand, Lord, for the, the biblical truths that we read in all of our contexts, Lord, and we know that we can't do it on our own because we default to, to not doing this well, but we pray that you would help us. And we pray, Lord, that as your church, that we would be your witness in our, in our community, in our global community, in our national community, but also in our specific locations, our specific contexts. Help us, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we know you listen because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.